Hello and welcome back to Take 97, the film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be indulging you in my yearly film review, which happens every single year, where I talk you through my top films and even some of the ones that I didn't like, just all my experiences of cinema, be it on the streaming side or the cinematic big silver screen side of things, or even just via a collector's Blu-ray disc or anything like that. Everything that I have seen this year condensed into this one mega episode that is film 2022 and i'm very excited just to chat to you guys about what i've seen what i've enjoyed things that i haven't enjoyed things that i thought were a little bit okay but not that great and yeah i don't need to waste my life after watching that again but here's to many many more films that we'll see coming out into 2023 and that's what i want to focus on really is that this episode is like all the the previous two that i've done it looks back at the films that I've seen, but we look forward to what we are going to get. And, yeah, I've seen some of the previews for next year. I'll go over a little bit at the end of the episode. But genuinely, I've enjoyed lots of stuff about 2022. It's almost very revisionist because we're getting lots of things that have repeated or at least revisited parts of everyone, at least people of my age, their childhoods and other people's childhoods. And the same is continuing on into 2023. But I shall get back to that at the end of the episode. But for now, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram and Twitter pages. So that's at take underscore 97 podcast on Instagram and at take 97 podcast on Twitter, where we will share our links to our episodes with everyone. You can share them with friends and family, get in contact with us, tell us what you think about films that we've talked about, and also just tell us what films or topics you'd like discussed maybe in the future any recommendations are always welcome for now guys let's crack on with the episode so 2022 in film because we just a quick statement on it really is that it's probably the first year that we've got back to some sort of normality since the initiation of the covid pandemic obviously a lot of the films that are being shown in 2022 there's still quite a few of them at least the beginning of the year that were coming out that were made with pandemic measures in mind so mask wearing two meter spacing you know safety precautions uh sanitizing everything in between every take i, I know death on the nile was a particular incident where it was meant to be released in 2020 so it was done pre-pandemic but it was not released until 2022 because of the delays and because they wanted the best theatrical release possible and also you know people weren't going to go and see it so the studio wasn't going to make any money from it so at the end of the day we get to see lots of gems that have been made before finally get their big screen debut but then also get to see a load that have been made in 2021 with measures in place where they've actually you know, been doing things a little bit differently in terms of the setup of a usual film set. And then we've also got some, you know, just generally that have been made quite quickly here and now. Uh, and I'll just talk you through some of the ones that I've been to see. So first of all, I'm going to break this down. I'm going to go through films that I went to see at the cinema, ones that I discovered via streaming or via a disc. Uh, and then also got some other mentions for 2022 as well. So the big anniversaries of legendary films that have been around for a few years now or more than the few and then also i've got some uh, like dedications to just a few of the many stars that we've lost this year from the world of film and tv and entertainment in general that i'd like to pay homage to towards the end of this episode so let's get started 2022 started off with uh, i think the film that i started off with the most because obviously when we started take 97 in 2022 
we released an episode on Spider-Man No Way Home, which obviously I saw at the end of 2021. And there was a big, massive crowd that went to see that. You know, loads of people went to see it. The cinema experience was key. I've already explained that loads. But I've been to see many more since then, including, and one of my first trips to the cinema in the new year was Matt Reeves' The Batman. Uh, DC, new version of the DC comic character hero, uh, played by, in this version at least, Robert Patterson, who plays Bruce Wayne Batman. And it was an epic three-hour film, which, if you want my opinions and you want to hear more about it from Take 97, go to my episode about the Batman, uh, superhero noir, as I've called it on the episode listing. Uh, but it was a very enjoyable film, very intense. I went to see it, actually, Little League Cinema Experience shout-out as well. I went to see it at the Loom Cinema, Loom, so that's L-U-M-E, Loom Cinema, uh, which in Kidderminster. So if anyone's local to the area, uh, I visited it at the beginning of the year, and they're just a nice, niche little cinema that's very independent, but gets all, yeah, they get all the blockbusters and, you know, films there that you expect from any big chain, but it's a really nice, niche little cinema. I have to say, they had the speakers up quite loudly for the Batman. I have to say it was very loud and noisy, because <laughs> it was such a tiny room, but the speakers were so loud. So um, I was just genuinely blown away by you know the speaker sound effects and the quality in that room but uh, it was an interesting experience nonetheless and they decorate their cinema very nicely it's very interesting and very you know classic and independent styled so I enjoyed my time there but we started off with the Batman uh, and I continued on to see quite a few other films in quick succession as well because there were films that I was desperate to see um, but I'll you know just to give them a quick a little list this isn't in any particular order but a lot of them, you will probably guess when they came out, when I saw them. Uh, I saw Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness twice, both in different multiplex-based cinemas. First time was more locally I saw that with people that I know from around my area that I'm living now. And then I went back home to meet up with a friend and watched it a second time as well. And uh, yeah, it didn't get boring either time, but I do think... It's not the best film that Marvel has ever brought out. Again, I've done an episode on the Multiverse of Madness where I did bump into another version of myself from another dimension as well as another version of Ace Mesa from Films Unchained podcast. So if you want to have a little look at that, that's on the podcast as well. I saw three Marvel films this year, three proper Marvel feature films this year, uh, which is mad to say really, but to my knowledge, I can't remember anymore, but there's only three that I've seen. Multiverse of Madness wasn't, you know, it, it followed on from the events of Spider-Man No Way Home, but it wasn't the best film ever. Like, it's fairly standard. They kept slating it as, like, Marvel's first horror film. It had freaky moments in it, but it wasn't the best. Like, Dead Strange, or Zombie Strange that's at the end of the film, was probably the creepiest part of the film, and it wasn't even that scary. Like, to a young child, maybe, but for me, as, like, a mid-twenties guy... I'm not really scared by that. Yeah, I thought, ooh, that looks a bit horrible, but not like, oh my god, I'm terrified. So I do think in terms of Marvel films, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, whilst the concept was there, there wasn't enough multiverse in there. That's what I'll say, just to briefly cap that off with. Uh, and other Marvel highlights, so I'll highlight that that I also saw on the big screen. Uh, we saw the likes of Wakanda Forever, which was the more recent and the last film, uh, of Phase 4, if I remember correctly as well. So that's going to conclude Phase 4. Uh, and uh, Wakanda Forever was just a great love letter to the late Chadwick Boseman. May he rest in peace. A great actor whose time was cut so short 
very cruelly, but he was a great inspiration for the team that brought this film together. He may not have been physically in the film other than in archive footage, which they used very, very well, but his presence was known throughout the entire film. Uh, you know, Letitia Wright as Shuri does a great performance. We set up new futures for the rest of the MCU with, you know, Ironheart as well, which we'll get to see later in a Disney Plus series at some point as well. But it's a really solid film, very emotional. It was quite a long film, but it's very emotional, but also standard Marvel. I think the emotional side of it hits more than the Marvel Marvel. So like the that side of it where it's all action and superhero punches. But yeah, it's a pretty good film. I wouldn't say it's amazing. Again, like all the Marvel films, they're all starting to sort of blend together a little bit and start to look a little bit the same, except for some of the emotional value in some of them. For instance, Thor Love and Thunder. Loved Thor Love and Thunder because it was Taika Waititi again directing it. It was a really funny film. I did enjoy it. It was very enjoyable, but at the same time, it's just a very, like, all Marvel super superhero films have the same narrative. You know, there's an equilibrium, it's disturbed by a bad guy. The superhero has to go and fix it. They have to fight some sort of internal battle with their own emotions or their own troubles to then get to the other side to beat the villain using the lesson that they've learnt by the, the middle sort of disturbance that they've had, which is exactly what happens with Thor. You know, we're, we're coping with the fallout from Avengers Endgame, and, you know, he's back in shape. He's also joined the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, we also get to see the Guardians of the Galaxy in a Christmas special, little mini special presentation, Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, uh, which is fun and enjoyable if you love seeing Kevin Bacon getting chased around by Drax and Mantis at Christmas time. That's brilliant. Uh, but, you know, we get to see Guardians of the Galaxy, including, you know, the likes of Chris Pratt, Nebula, although in this case it's not Nebula, it's a, it's a double apparently, someone told me. Uh, but we get to see these characters we know love sort of supporting Thor as he's in his stages of not grief, but like getting over the trauma of Endgame and everything he's gone through. And we start to focus more on his lost love, and that is Jane, who becomes mighty Thor. And we get to see even more of the funny Thor that we were used to in the first Taika Waititi version of the Thor films, which was Ragnarok. It's an okay concept, but the film is very action-packed. It's got lots of laughs. It's standard Taika Waititi does Marvel, really. But I, I, at the end of the day, I don't think Marvel is the the winner of many things for me. Uh, I loved Love and Thunder, but it was underwhelming in places, as was many of the Marvel offerings this year. Like I enjoyed them, but I can't say humbly that any of them are my absolute favourites. Uh, and, you know, we look at the blockbusters of the year. Some of them have fallen quite flat because they're either too CGI heavy or they've focused too much on, you know, like I said, the visuals, but not so much on the plot. And I just want to point out a couple of examples. So, yeah, obviously I mentioned Thor, Love and Thunder, Doctor Strange. I tried to be visual with it, but the story was a bit basic and a little bit rubbish at times. Wakanda Forever was the sort of the standout because it was very emotional and it was all about Chadwick Boseman but that's a slightly different story. We get the likes of Pixar trying to bring out more of the love that people had for Toy Story about doing Toy Story, and that is the origin story of Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear, in fact. Again, I've done an episode on Lightyear, so if you want my feelings on it and my opinions, just go and check that episode out. But Lightyear, for me, was too much. It looked 
good and I loved Sock the Robot Cat, but other than that, I really didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would have done. It, it was It's something you can put on and just chill to, but it's not something that I'll watch over and over and over again like the original Toy Story films. I think the fact that Chris Evans is the voice and it's not Tim Allen kind of distracted me a bit and I have my own preconceived notions of what Buzz Lightyear should be. It, even, it, you know, the real Buzz Lightyear that inspired the toy from Toy Story. So, but the story was pretty decent and sound, but it wasn't anything complex or complicated. Now, you probably sat there, guys, right now thinking, is this guy actually going to say anything nice about 2022 films? Well, I will get back to that now, and that is the likes of... I've mentioned three-hour epic of Batman. It was very long, very complicated, but it was it was very well plotted, but it was very long. But, you know, structurally, it was like a detective thriller, very similar to, like, you know, drawing the inspiration from the Zodiac murders, etc. And I talk about, like, murders and crime, and that leads me on to a couple of my other favourite films of the year. And that includes the adaptation of the Delia Owens book, Where the Crawdads Sing. Again, I've done a review on this one. I know I keep saying I've done reviews on pretty much loads of these so far. Uh, but Where the Crawdads Sing is an excellent film that was really packed with story, mainly because the source material was so strong and so you know, rich with texture and detail that we were able to get quite a satisfying film, both from a narrative perspective and also a visual perspective as well. The Marshlands of Carolina, it, it looked beautiful. Daisy Edgar-Jones does a massively amazing performance as Kaya, the, the Marsh Girl, the Outsider, if you want to know more, just listen to the Crawdads episode that I did at the beginning of the year because it's honestly so worth listening to and just watch the film. It was a beautifully well put together piece of cinema and I just love watching it. I could watch that over and over again. Um, other things as well relating to crime as well because I mentioned crime because there's a murder at the centre of the story for where the Crawdads sang. Uh, and specifically about murder, See How They Run. Honestly, I haven't done a review on See How They Run, but See How They Run, for me, was a brilliant standout. It was a comedy murder mystery thriller with Sasha Ronan and Sam Rockwell at the helm of this film, and Adrian Brody was in it as well, brief time anyway. Um, but if you watch the film, you'll find out why. That film was just amazing, and Sasha Ronan's work in that film was just spot on. She was the simpleton of the two of them out of her and Sam Rockwell, but genuinely she was so amazing. It's set in the 1950s, uh, around the time that we get the Mousetrap. It's actually based around the Agatha Christie play, The Mousetrap. Um, I didn't know that when I first watched it, but it's actually it's a fictional story, but set around the actual real-life events of, or should I say, the real-life show that was put together based, you know, Agatha Christie's own whodunit work of The Mousetrap, which has been on stage for years and years, and it's incorporated it into this murder mystery about someone who gets murdered in theatre. Uh, and genuinely, it's such a delight. It isn't anything complicated by any narrative standards. It's not a big, meaningful piece of, you know, statements saying cinema like any of the other films that have come out. Like, I think it's um, She Said came out this year as well. Big statement on the Me Too campaign. I haven't actually seen that one, so I can't really judge it. I've heard some early mixed reviews about it, but that's a big statement piece of cinema. Whereas See How They Run is just a nice, fun piece of escapism if you like your murder mystery stuff. It's set in the 50s. It's got lots of comedy punches to it. And as a detective 
noir genre fan person that I am, I love watching it and the aesthetics of it it was really well done incorporating Agatha Christie in a completely different light this year I also saw Death on the Nile the Kenneth Branagh adaptation of the Agatha Christie best-selling novel as well as you know following up from Orient on the Orient following on from Murder on the Orient Express Death on the Nile continues the journey of Hercule Poirot as played by Kenneth Branagh who directs everything else as well that was a tour de force in terms of period drama and murder mystery genre filmmaking but it looked really good it was really in, indulging in terms of looking at the aesthetics of it and everything but i think that see how they run was the better film it was the better film because it was more simple and not as over the top in terms of the usual agatha christie dramatics um, i haven't seen it yet but it has gone on to netflix as of the 23rd of december but the ryan johnson glass onion feature film or glass onion a knives out mystery so the sequel to knives out is out now it's on netflix uh, i haven't watched that yet i need to do it i'll probably do a review on that one at some point but it was a really based on the trailers that one's continuing the legacy that ryan johnson has initiated from knives out and continues to do with daniel craig looking forward to that i think that i think he signed a deal with netflix to do quite a few of those film knives out related yeah, films or Benoit Blanc or however you say his name, the one played by Daniel Craig with the very terrible Kentucky accent. Uh, but I just think, look, moving forward, we're going to see a lot more whodunits in that respect. And I think we've also, I think it's um, Death in Venice, I think it's called, or uh, something like that. I, I can't remember what it's called, but something related to Venice. There is going to be another sequel to Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. The next Hercule Poirot mystery is coming out to the big screen. I think it's is going to be 2023 unless it's delayed but yeah there's going to be one of those coming out as well so more whodunits to come really i'm excited to see what direction they go in if they're any decent but i've heard early reports glass onion is very good from a visual point of view and equally the story is just as engaging uh, and that brings me back to see how they run see how they run was a tour de force in comedy thriller writing mashups that i want to see more of like you don't get that kind of film anymore. You don't get the lovely resurgence of nostalgia, but also still keeping it fresh. And, you know, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking and you get the dead guy, the murder victim, speaking to the audience via a voiceover like he's dead, but he's still there. You know, that, that's that been done in many more serious films, which I won't spoil for you. But in this case, it's a comedy and it's a thriller at the same time. And I just think it was a really enjoyable film from start to finish. Uh, and, you know, it really exceeded my expectations. It looked good, and then I watched it, and it was good. So that's what I'd like to say about that. It was a genuinely fun film from start to finish. And blockbusters, you know, that was you know, a small-scale blockbuster, as it were, but blockbusters, you know, Marvel, apart from Wakanda Forever, a little bit, a little moments from Thor, Love and Thunder. Generally, I had mixed feelings about the blockbusters of this year. Uh, for instance, I went along because i saw halloween kills last year so i thought i'd continue the legacy and see halloween ends and see how it ends <laughs> and i just think realistically michael needs to die this should really be the final halloween film you know obviously it's the last film in the trilogy of films that was reignited by bloomhouse and the usual horror makers that make films nowadays that should be the end it wasn't the greatest film Halloween ends 
it brought the vibes of, you know, it connects everything up to the original Michael Myers incident. We get to see a final showdown with Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers right at the end. I just think the main character that they had in this that was doing the majority of the murdering and the legwork that wasn't Michael Myers, I don't know what they were thinking. It was a little bit confusing for me why they would detract so much from your main character. But then again, people were probably getting bored of seeing how Michael Myers can survive all the stabs and all the baseball bats to the head and everything like that. But um, no, the films that I did like that were blockbusters, obviously I liked Wakanda Forever. Elements of Doctor Strange were good as well, but as much as it's a bit of a divisive thing to say, I did enjoy Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. I actually think, and I will get around to doing my series of Harry Potter like episodes very soon, but I genuinely think The Secrets of Dumbledore is the first Fantastic Beasts film to feel like a Harry Potter film, but not a Harry Potter film. So Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was a good setup, but it was very simple and it just set the world up and everything, so you have to forgive it a little bit. Um, the Crimes of Grindelwald, so the second Fantastic Beast, was much better in terms of, you know, going into its expanded universe and connecting to the world of Harry Potter because we got to see Dumbledore played by Jude Law for the first time. Don't think it was that special. It was sort of, near. it was okay. Whereas I think The Secrets of Dumbledore, it had just enough links to the world of Harry Potter, the wizarding world that we already knew and loved from the, you know, the first eight films that we've seen from the wizarding world. But then at the same time, it was still being its own thing, but progressing on with the story that had been set up in the previous two films a little bit too simply uh, so i did enjoy fantastic beasts and where to find them it was a great film just a bit of fun really controversially though i'll sort of end on my blockbuster cinema shall we say that i went to see in the cinema and i think jurassic world dominion gets a little bit too much hate like lots of people are like moaning about the cgi and i can see how bad the cgi is i understand that and I understand also and agree that the CGI should have been better, that they clearly rushed it, and it should have been a better quality for what they can do nowadays, which just proves that CGI is relied on too much, and whoever they're giving the work to, they're not given enough time to finally polish and finesse the computer-generated images. Uh, you know, that's why I think so many filmmakers now are going back to the old-school way of things and going through practical effects and showing you how things can be done for real uh, most of the time it looks more effective and much better and less phony um, they did include a little bit of puppetry in jurassic world dominion uh, and honestly i think jurassic world dominion's appeal is more for me is founded mostly in the fact that we can watch the legends that uh the original trio including jeff goldblum laura dern and just seeing them together, three of them on screen with all the new cast from the Jurassic World trilogy and bringing both halves of the franchise together. Now, I hear Colin Trevorrow wants to continue the legacy and go on to another trilogy altogether. Personally, it should just stop. I think it should really just end now. It wasn't the best film, but I enjoyed it more than some. I can put the CGI crapness aside and say that I actually thought it was okay. The story element itself was very simple. It was all about beating a, you know, a virus that was let out into the world uh, and following on from the fallout of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the second film. 
and we just get to see you know how the dynamic between Chris Pratt's character and the character of Maisie. I just think it's really something that was a fan pleaser. It was set up to be a fan pleaser because we had the original cast in there, uh, at least the original three trio that were leading the first film and parts of the other two sequels as well. So it was great fun. It had some great captureable moments where you got to see them all together on screen, staring up at a big T-Rex all together in awe of it. But it wasn't, from the CGI perspective, you know, computer-generated images were not the best. But that's all I have to say on that side of things. Um, Death on the Nile was okay, but it was just really basic. It, it was what we expected it to be. Nothing short of you know, what we expected, but at the same time, it was enjoyable. For me, the blockbuster itself, I think, is dead, because, you know, Fantastic Beasts, the franchise apparently is, you know, it's dead apparently, because Ezra Miller, due to all the things that are going on with Ezra Miller right now, he's just been completely cancelled out of life, he's just not really, he's just gone off the rails completely, you know, he's left the DCEU in some sort of mess, because obviously he was going to be in the Flash movie, which I think has now been cancelled. Uh, obviously DC has cancelled Batgirl, which was all ready to be shown, and we had Michael Keaton come back as Batman. He was going to be in the Batgirl film, and he was also going to be in the Flash film, but never to be seen, apparently, unless someone does a Save the Snyderverse-style thing, like Save the Zack Snyder cut, and bring it back, but who knows? I I would have liked to have seen the Flash film based on the teaser trailer that we saw, because I would love to see Michael Keaton back as Batman in the multiverse. I genuinely was thinking that's going to be amazing, but we'll have to see what James Gunn does with the DC universe from this point on, especially with the firing of Henry Cavill as Superman. Um, I do want to see, I'm very excited to see Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which I think is the only thing that has been left untampered by the James Gunn takeover. So I think it fits with his vision, because it's, it's funny, but it's not dark, but it's got enough seriousness in it to be a decent hardcore DC character. Um, I didn't see Black Adam, but I do aim to put it on my to-watch list. But Shazam! Fury of the Gods, I'm very excited to see. I think the blockbuster is dead. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I went to see some slightly more independent films. So I saw Halloween Ends, um, sort of the end of that blockbuster streak. Orphan First Kill, the prequel to the original film Orphan. It was alright. <laughs> it was a horror film. I mean, I went because my partner is literally obsessed with horror films, and she was obsessed with The Orphan, so we went to see that. And it was an interesting viewing, but it was just... I don't know, it was freaky, because that girl, even though, like... Because she's grown up a lot now, so they had to shoot everything from a specific angle, so it made it look like she was shorter than she actually was, and they had to use a body double for whenever they shot from behind they could it, you could clearly see that it wasn't the original actress in some of the shots and they just got a body double uh so that was just kind of laughable from start to finish smile there's a film called smile a horror film called smile it's one of those weird edgy bloom house productions a bit like black phone that also came out fairly i think it was this year that came out which starred ethan hawk in it Smile was a weird one because it's all psychological, but it's connected like a curse. It's got a curse in there where, you know, someone's cursed with the smile and then they pass it on to their whoever witnesses the murder happen of uh, the events that happen between this person that ends up basically killing themselves and it, none of it's explained. And it's if you watch the trailer for the film Smile, 
it's a very weird film from start to finish, but I think it's a very engaging film. It keeps you guessing from start to finish, and keeps, it kept me hooked the entire time. So, you know, a real hooking, gripping film uh, for horror. Not many modern horror films get me these days. I don't really get them. Uh, I like to watch all the cheesier classic horror films. Like even, even Freddy Krueger in his cheesiest form from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, I prefer watching the older style of things where they do practical effects rather than the CGI. The CGI wasn't too bad in Smile, but it wasn't, you know, to my taste because I prefer that. I I know it's bad, but I like the crappy side of horror. I really do. I worship it. Uh, but we kind of get that a little bit with Halloween Ends, but not as much. Yeah, Orphan First Kill and Smile were two horror films that I went to see around the like the Halloween period. They were okay, and uh, I think Smile was the definite was definitely the better one out of the two of them. Really, I'd say. Um, other highlights I'd like to point out from when I I went to the cinema. You know, uh, I'll mention some uh, streaming highlights as well now. Actually, so we we'll move on to ones that I've said seen from like streaming service, so Netflix, Disney Plus, ones that I bought on disc for the first time as well uh, that I didn't get a chance to see in the cinema when they first came out or even when they first went on to Disney+, Plus, but I just decided to buy the disc, so why not? Uh, I've seen, I've actually watched Hocus Pocus, the original one, for the first time this year. Never seen it before. Uh, and I think it's its 30th anniversary next year, I think, because uh, I think it was came out in 1993. Uh, so not short of the 30th anniversary, but Hocus Pocus 2 came out on Disney+, Plus as a Disney Plus original movie, and... I wasn't into the hype originally, but I genuinely loved it. And their version of the bitches back, the 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 witches are back. The Sanderson sisters, you know, good old Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker. I can't remember the woman's name, but the third one. Honestly, Hocus Pocus Two was such a rip roaring ride of fun for a modern generation, mixing some of the old school gags from the first one into a new era. I just loved it. That was a brilliant one. I also watched Pinocchio, the live action Pinocchio from Disney. On Disney Plus, that has caused a bit of sort of divided opinion. You know, is Tom Hanks decent as Geppetto? I uh, I think he you know he looks the part. He's got an interesting accent, but after his comments saying that he's only got a handful of his favorite films that he's done, even though he's done million like loads and loads of films, he only really likes about five films. I wonder which ones they are. I bet they're not the ones we think they are, but I don't think this is one of them. But I genuinely enjoyed Pinocchio. It was actually, to be honest, it brought out more of the darkness of the source material from the Pinocchio, like the Twisted Tales books, like the original fairy tales. I've seen the original Pinocchio, and you'd think original Disney cartoons can be quite dark. I, I think the moment when Pinocchio gets, you know, and all the boys that are with Pinocchio on the, the island, the Funfair Island thing, when they get turned into donkeys and sold off as labour, you know, they're taken away from their mothers. Like, that's really horrible. Like, I genuinely didn't, like, I've only watched Pinocchio, the Disney cartoon, once. But genuinely, I've never been so, like, not disgusted, but like, whoa, Jesus, that is dark. No, I've never really looked into the story properly. All I know is that Pinocchio is the wooden boy brought to life, who every time he lies, his nose gets bigger, and he's got a cricket as a, conscience assigned to him by a blue fairy but you know Cynthia Enviro who you know I love from Bad Times of the El Royale she made a good turn as the witch uh, well not the witch the blue fairy in this version 
she was very, I don't know, everything she said was very musical, <laughs> a little bit out of place sometimes. But I genuinely think that, you know, this Pinocchio was very enchanting and enlightening and not as bad as what some people said. Uh, but at the same time, we also have Gilmore del Toro's adaptation of Pinocchio. Uh, it's a stop-motion animation film that's on Netflix as we speak now. Visually, that film is beautiful. I think they're two different types of films. The live-action Disney productions are all about reinventing the classic catalogue for a modern audience who don't like 2D cartoons. Although, I think Disenchanted might have something to say about that because that tries to introduce a little bit more of the 2D style of filmmaking that Disney was used to doing back into the modern era, which Enchanted did very well. But, you know, I think Pinocchio, it depends what you want. If you want to go for a you know, very true to the Disney version, then you can watch the live action one with Tom Hanks. Uh, it's very nice, very heartwarming. Uh, but if you want something even more wholesome, then I would say a little bit more homemade as well. Go to the Gilmora del Toro Pinocchio, which it's got Ewan McGregor in it as one of the voice cast as well, which I think is very nice. You know, Ewan McGregor and Obi-Wan Kenobi, the TV series, but I think Ewan McGregor and Pinocchio, that's a recipe for success right there. So go and check that one out. I just, you know, I just keep spitballing onto these different films. I've seen so many. Uh, like I said, so Pinocchios, there's the two Pinocchios, you can choose those. I personally enjoyed the Disney one, even though a lot of people didn't, but I did. Uh, I also watched uh, Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson. The trailer made it look better than it actually did. It's beautifully shot, but it's not the best film that I've ever watched. Like, I love the 70s, I love the soundtrack, you know, the, the aesthetic that they're going for. And it's just a ro romantic story about girl meets boy. It's kind of... I feel like the reason they go back in time these days is to vary it up so it's not girl meets boy in the modern era where you got phones in the way. They try and look back to the way things used to be in filmmaking nowadays and try and find that lost love letter to love. Uh, but Licorice Pizza, you know, it's set, I don't even know why it's called Licorice Pizza. There is no Licorice Pizza anywhere in that film, so I do not understand the title whatsoever. I think it's um, the name of a song and it gets sort of... Somebody said, oh, you should call a film that or something, but I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, West Side Story, the 2020, but then it came out like 2022 uh, like version of the original classic Broadway stage show from the 1950s, 1957. It, it kind of sticks true to the original source material, but obviously I will always love the 1960s version. Rita Moreno's appearance, so she originally played Anita, in the 61 film. She plays a slightly different character, freshly made actually, for this film, but still close to the source material, or like the, the film and the stage show, but her performance is brilliant and I love seeing her as a legacy character, but I just, I will always love the original. The, the improvements in technology and cinematography are really well grounded and I can appreciate them from Steven Spielberg, but at the end of the day, He's taken something that was already good and just tried to up it again. And it, to me, I don't see the point in that. If it's great, don't fix it. If it's not broken, don't fix it. That's what I'll say. Uh, but I did enjoy some of the dance routines and seeing the, the way it was shot and everything. It was lovely colours throughout, but it's not my favourite film. And I've said that about many things. But moving on to something else that I've seen, it was a DVD that I found. I saw the trailer for it quite a few years ago, and I discovered a film called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. 
Uh, I didn't know much about Louis Wayne, uh, but he was a man who basically sort of discovered electricity all through the life of cats and paintings of cats. Uh, and there was, you know, I can't really explain the story properly without you watching because it's about a real person. It's a biopic. Uh, it's got Claire Foy in it as well, opposite Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays the title character of Louis Wayne. And it's got some adorable cats. They're goddamn adorable cats in the film and how they sort of inspired him to move forward with his ideas and theories about scientific advances. I think it's, and it's a lovely heartwarming story. It's very heartbreaking as we get towards the end of some of the characters that we see in the film. But I genuinely think you should check out The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, uh, along with The Duke. Another film based on true events, based, you know, with Jim Broadbent in the fray. And I absolutely love, you know, the fact about an old man who steals a painting of the Duke. It's just, it, it's a it's a very wholesome British film. That's, you know, that and the electrical life of Louis Wayne, I would highly recommend as wholesome based on true events films. So go and see those if you can on any format that you choose. Uh, other films that I can sort of round off my experiences... I went to see Violet Night, which I've just reviewed. You will have just heard the episode that's just come out recently. That's the Christmas film with David Harbour as Santa. Enough said on that. That was a really fun ride. And then Spirited, which was a musical, a literary musical from start to finish, version of A Christmas Carol with a twist, starring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. And it was only shown in select, I think, showcase cinemas and uh, maybe a couple of other, maybe one other cinema, like Independent Chain. It was an Apple TV original, but it was shown in cinemas. And I got to see it at a showcase because there's one down the road from me. And honestly, it was really good. Well shot, brilliant. And I love the twist that they've used and the world they've set up, adding to the mythology of A Christmas Carol even more. But at the same time, I think Violet Night, out of the two Christmas films I saw this year, is the winner. That's all I have to say on yeah, those two Christmas favourites. Uh, and I also saw, just to sort of close things off in terms of films that I saw, uh, I saw Don't Worry Darling, Olivia Wilde's attempt at a thriller. It was just, I mean, it was good. I've reviewed it, and you can listen to my thoughts on the episode, but Jesus, that film is just messed up towards the end. It, like, it's very, very dark. Like, we go from traditional 1950s housewife activities to, like, abuse of the female gender. And just anything in anything like negative that could be thought of a dystopian world of where well not even dystopian actually it's like a world where men which is you know can be likened to some aspects or a lot of aspects I should say of today's life where she basically says men are controlling women and they feel like they lose control so they create an environment for them to control these women in and it's just a very dark tale but it's shot so beautifully and so well like structured like i i, I think it's worth a watch some people criticize Livy Wilde for all the drama that's going on with her and harry styles uh, and some of the others but in, and whilst harry styles isn't the best actor on the planet I think for the purposes of the film, it works very well. But Don't Worry Darling is one of those films, very much like See How They Run. It's something of its own liking, you know. You don't get many films like that these days where, you know, it's got that feel of The Matrix. So a bit of old school vibe in terms of a virtual reality side of things or being taken out of the real world or The Truman Show. Uh, and See How They Run is very much like an old fashioned, like, grueball comedy, but with 
more serious thriller undertones it's just I, I don't know there's a lot of nostalgia being brought into this generation and I kind of like it but I also like the advances as we're with the messages and we're incorporating into these narratives and moving forward so I am enjoying them Another musical highlight that I'd like to mention, I've already mentioned uh, the likes of Spirited just now and Elvis, but I'd like to also mention a film, the adaptation of the stage musical, which is based on the book, which was also made into another film, which starred Danny DeVito, for anyone who knows that film, uh, that is Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. Uh, Matilda the Musical, I'm not going to lie, I have experience with it as a former theatre kid, uh, I, I literally just, I remember doing the songs, and uh, well, a couple of the songs, uh, and they're quite catchy, but pretty annoying in some respects, because, you know, they're so repetitive, not because they're bad, but because, you know, they get stuck in your head, uh, but other than that, uh, you know, I, I think the film, I haven't seen the stage show, my partner wants me to go to see the stage show, but literally, the film is so good, like, I am really excited for everybody else who hasn't seen it yet to see it, because very much like Spirited, it's a wall-to-wall -wall musical, but this one is very much, it's a piece of fun, it's through the perspective of children, it's from a classic Roald Dahl tale, you can't get much better than that. And I genuinely think, you know, Spirited was good, but Roald Dahl and Spirited was good, but I think in terms of musical ability, like, uh, uh, yeah, there's the highlight from Hocus Pocus too, as I've mentioned already, but yeah, like I said, Matilda the Musical is something that I definitely watch. I think it's going to be on Netflix in sometime in the new year for the UK. It's streaming in the US now, and I believe Canada potentially as well. But definitely in the US, it's streaming. It's streamed from Christmas Day, but it's not on Netflix yet uh, because the UK was one of the only places to show it in cinemas, whereas the others, it, I mean... They did it with Glass Onion, but Glass Onion was definitely a limited release, and then they released it on Netflix everywhere. But yeah, keep an eye out for Matilda the Musical. It's a genuinely fun film, uh, full of heart and soul and emotion. If you love that sort of thing, go for it. And in terms of biopics, I'll end on one biopic which I've reviewed, but I can't help but mention all of this hard work that has gone into this epic film that I will not shut up about, and that is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. The Elvis biopic starring Austin Butler as the brilliant king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. He does a tour de force performance. He literally dedicated himself to sound like Elvis so much, he actually couldn't shake the Elvis accent off after so many months. So, I'm, so I read in like reports and articles, but I genuinely think but Elvis is one of those, like, for me, Elvis is my number one film, I think, of the year. Like, Violent Night was my favourite Christmas film. If I was to rank my films of this year, I would say, you know, Elvis would be the top one. And see how they run, where the crawdads sing, and then I'd also add in Violent Night as well. Those would be my top films, I'd say, for 2022. Genuinely, Elvis is a dramatic piece. It's got lots of musical set pieces in there, and I can't stress how much you should watch it it's an experience it's a roller coaster like any Baz Luhrmann film but genuinely it was so immersive like I love The Great Gatsby I love Moulin Rouge it's like it whacked Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby together so like real life stuff so like you know based on a novel by F Scott Fitzgerald you know fictional musical about a real place put them together while party cinematography and what you get you get Elvis cannot wait to see what Baz Luhrmann does next I really hope um, from a collector's point of view, I hope Baz Luhrmann does a load of like partnerships with the Criterion Collection, because I want to see Criterion Collection editions 
of all of his films with special bonus features and archive material because the Baz Luhrmann archives are something that I if he's listening, if you're listening Baz, I would love to get down into your archives and see your thought process behind your films like I've seen and read about it but I'd love to see it firsthand because genuinely I think it's genius uh, especially the Great Gatsby work but Elvis I think is the next step up real life stuff but with you know just enough to make it entertaining and consumable but at the same time an art form in itself so but that's enough said about Elvis Elvis would be definitely my top film of the year I would say personally with lots of bits that I've enjoyed you know I've, I've loved seeing things like the likes of Thor and Doctor Strange on the big screen again and also the return of the Jurassic Park gang uh, but genuinely all of these films are just there for enjoyment at the end of the day and that's what I always say at the end of all these episodes we look forward to new ones we've got Oppenheimer the latest Christopher Nolan epic starring um I think it's Killian Murphy I think it is he's going to be playing Oppenheimer based on the creation of the atomic bomb that's coming out in 2023 I'm excited to see how phase five of Marvel turns out I've enjoyed some of the Disney plus shows like Ms Marvel and parts of She-Hulk as well not so much the CGI but She-Hulk the story and the tone is very good and I'm just excited to see where you know the new Captain America comes in as well with Sam Wilson as Captain America I'm very excited for that uh, and I just want to see yeah, as we build up in the years to Secret Wars and Kang Dynasty, what we get in the future of the multiverse in this multiversal saga. But yeah, it could still be the same substandard stuff we've had recently, but I'm looking forward to seeing whether it gets better, whether we get a resurgence of like we did with Endgame, but we'll soon see. Before I conclude this episode, I feel like I've gone on about all sorts of things now, but before I continue, I'd just like to finish off really with a couple of bits so just a few fun facts so anniversaries of films legendary classic films or even fairly new ones which are starting to get a bit older now that have had special milestone anniversaries this year and this year we have had the 60th anniversary of Orson Welles's adaptation of Franz Kafka's work The Trial which starred Anthony Perkins who most people know as Norman Bates from Psycho, the Hitchcock film. But The Trial, I watched that when I was at uni. I purchased the 60th anniversary restoration Blu-ray and it looks fantastic. It genuinely does. It's a very gripping thriller, very gripping story. Confusing still to this day, but genuinely, if no one's seen it, please go out and watch it. It's a brilliant watch from start to finish. But that's the 60th anniversary of The Trial in 2022. The Muppets Christmas Carol, classic film to behold in any household over the Christmas period. I watched it this year as well. Uh, and Disney Plus has actually reinstated the When Love Is Gone, the song which was cut from most home video releases, home media releases or theatrical releases, apart from I think it was the VHS edition they kept the song in. It's only a matter of like three minutes, but it adds so much more emotion and gravitas. And that has been reinserted into the film the negatives have been found and they put it back in and it works seamlessly once again and it's on Disney Plus so if you go on the extra section Disney Plus go on The Muppets Christmas Carol go on the extras and find full version it's an hour and 29 minutes as opposed to an hour and 27 and that is the version you should watch because it's got the song with Scrooge young Scrooge and a bit of old Scrooge played by Michael Caine and his love Belle and it really adds that emotional anchor. It's a little bit like the extended version of Aliens, where you get that emotional scene about Ripley and her daughter in the special edition. Like, you don't get as much emotional value without it. 
until you see it with it. And now you can't unsee it. So Muppets Christmas Carol, it's the 30th anniversary of it in 2022. So props to the Christmas Carol from the Muppets gang. It was a lovely, it's a lovely film. You have to watch it. If not for Michael Caine, but for Gonzo. Tiny Tim, who did not die, is one of my favourite quotes. Even though it's actually in the book, I can't unread that without hearing Gonzo's voice. One of my favourite noirs, or neo-noirs, LA Confidential reached its 25th anniversary this year. Avengers Assemble, or Avengers, the original Avengers films from 2012. That is 10 years old. Cannot believe that is 10 years old this year, in 2022. It's also the 25th anniversary of Titanic, the James Cameron epic. Haven't seen Way of the Water, the Avatar film yet. To be honest, I'm a little bit over the hype. Not really fussed about it, so I probably won't watch it. But if anyone wants to let me know their thoughts on, Av on Avatar, Way of the Water, please do. All I know is that Sigourney Weaver plays a 14-year-old version of an Avatar through CGI. I, I don't know whether that's meant to be impressive or just slightly disturbing, but we'll go with it. Uh, and then on top of that, we've also got um, E.T., the 40th anniversary of E.T., and also Blade Runner. That was its 40th anniversary this year. Brilliant films. I love all of these. And then Home Alone, Home Alone 2 specifically, Lost in New York, my favourite Christmas film of all time, up with Violent Night now, obviously. Uh, that is in its 30th year. I'm still waiting for a special release or collector's edition of that film. Please listen to me, 20th Century Studios slash Disney. <laughs> I want that collector's edition on Blu-ray. Uh, but it's a brilliant film, and it's reached its 30th anniversary, just like The Muppets. Uh, and then on top of that, we've got the likes of Singing in the Rain, which has entered its 70th anniversary this year. So happy 70th birthday, Singing in the Rain. And the two films particularly that are, re that are really you know, old films that have reached the 100th anniversary milestone are Nosferatu, which is like the inspiration for Dracula, basically, or a German version of Dracula, uh, and Nanook of the North, which is both of them are silent films. Uh, they are in their 100th anniversary years in 2022, uh, which is mad to think that some of these legends of cinema are getting that old. Like, I've heard about them for years since studying them, and they're just... They're still going strong. I think they're getting restorations all the time. So you're going to get the best quality versions eventually. So happy 100th to you guys. I've left one of these till last though. It's the 35th anniversary of a Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, it's the 60th anniversary of Lolita, but it's not that one. It's the 35th anniversary of Full Metal Jacket. Now, I think I may have mentioned this already, but please do check out the two-part pod series on Full Metal Jacket with myself and Ace from Films Unchained podcast. One episode with us, one episode with him, uh, and we celebrated the 35th anniversary of Full Metal Jacket in true, you know, style, podcast style. We did it together, and we discussed the hell out of it and talked about our favourite parts of the film, and truly it was one of my favourite Stanley Kubrick films. If someone says, oh, what's your favourite Kubrick film? I will always say The Shining. What's your second favourite Kubrick film? It will always be Full Metal Jacket because it's sort of up there with the interesting ones that are like very Kubrickian, but they take a subject and they go Kubrick style 24-7. If you want to learn more about that from me and Ace, please go and check out that two-part pod series out. But yeah, particularly I was very excited to see that Home Alone was 30 this year. Like, well, Home Alone 2, I should say, was 30 the other year. I think it was two years back we had Home Alone 1 the 30th anniversary so I, I it always makes me think of such happy memories watching that over christmas so yeah go and watch any of those films the anniversary editions watch the full version of the muppets christmas carol even if it's not christmas just watch it it's brilliant
And finally, we now conclude this episode with a few special mentions and obituaries to those that we lost this year, that myself and everyone at Tay97 would like to pay homage to. Obviously this is not everyone, but this is just a short list of some of the ones that I particularly found impacting to me, and that I love watching their work, and just it affected me generally more so than others. Not to say they've been less impactful uh, than these, but genuinely these ones I've looked up to so much. So uh, those that we lost, so in memoriam, uh, we have Ray Liotta, who died at the age of 67. Most people, including myself, will know him for Goodfellas, his role in Goodfellas. He, he was such a great actor. He'd been in many other things, but for me, Goodfellas was his standout performance. Um, so that was Ray Liotta at the age of 67. Uh, Olivia Newton-John was the one that hit me the most. The star of Grease and also the original musical Xanadu. Uh, she died at the age of 73 uh, after battling cancer for so long three years prior to this, and she, we thought she'd got over it, but clearly she'd succumbed to it once again. We're just going to very deeply miss Olivia Newton-John. You know, she's guest-starred in many programmes, she's done her own shows, everything from start to finish of her career has been nothing short of amazing. Uh, I was deeply affected because I, I love I love Grease so much, so it was very sad to hear the passing of Olivia Newton-John. Not a film person, but a TV loss, Jason David Frank, at the age of 49, the legend that played Tommy Oliver in Power Rangers series was sadly taken from us way too early. I won't dwell on the circumstances, but basically he will be sadly missed. And I'm very sad to see him leave this world because I think there was lots more that we could have done for him and we could have seen more from him. So I'm very sorry to see da Jason David Frank leave, leave the world. Um, my favourite Power Ranger forever. He will be forever red or green. Angela Lansbury, The Legend of Murder She Wrote, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and many other great roles that she played. She also made a starring guest appearance in Mary Poppins Returns alongside Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins. As a balloon lady at the end of the film, she died at the age of 96, uh, but she will always be the Bedknobs and Broomsticks lady and Jessica Fletcher of Murder She Wrote. Uh, Meatloaf, who made a star turn in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, died at the age of 74. Sidney Poitier, a legendary black man who died at the age of 94, becoming one of the first black men to be nominated for an Oscar, win an Oscar, and just make general history and stand up for what is right in the world of film. You know, he, he did so much, you know, and I've read interviews about and with him, where he said it was a big responsibility, a huge hit for him to be able to represent everybody who's felt like an outcast in the world of film and feel like that they can truly achieve what they want to. It's not just a white man's game. It is for anyone. And diversity is something we still strive for every single day. But Sidney Poitier, you are a legend and will always be a legend. I will respect you so much for that and you're just a great man, and your work as well, so much of it, I can't name all his films because there's so many, but he's done such a great job in loads of them, so rest in peace to Sidney Poitier at the age of 94. Joe Turkle, the barman Lloyd from The Shining, and also he was Tyrell in Blade Runner, he's died at the age of 94 also, he was a great, Joe Turkle was a great man, he, he had several turns in a couple of Stanley Kubrick films, uh, but most of the things he was in, he brought a certain edge of gravitas too, so I truly am going to miss Lloyd. Here's to you, Lloyd. 
another sort of uh, another legendary actor that I could say just to finish things off, James Kahn, who played a character in Misery, the main character in Misery. He also played Sonny in The Godfather, for which he won an Academy Award for, and also he was in Elf as well. Uh, he died at the age of 82, uh, and he, like many of these, he, he's just such a brilliant legendary figure in most of classic cinema uh, from the 80s and the 90s particularly and a little bit of the 70s as well uh, and finally we have one last person as well to mention which has been talked about a lot in the film community and that is the voice of batman from the animated series himself kevin conroy kevin conroy you will be missed you will always be batman so thank you for so much guys and that's the end of our in memoriam section I'm looking forward to, just a quick note, I'm looking forward to, you know, the likes of seeing what Christopher Nolan does with Oppenheimer, uh, what Marvel Phase 5 does for us, and I'm just really excited to see what interesting independent films we see. And also, I want to watch more films that I missed out in 2022, like I'm going to be watching Glass Onion, I'm sure to catch up on the likes of I'm sure to catch up on the likes of so many films that have only just come out. I'll, yeah, I think um, Darren, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, I think, hasn't come to cinemas just yet. It stars Brendan Fraser in it and Sadie Sink. That looks like an emotional film. I also want to catch up on everything and everyone, or whatever it is, the multiversal film that was probably better than Doctor Strange. Uh, I want to see what that was like. So many films. And I just want to rewatch some of the ones I've already seen, to be honest. Like, you know... As I've said before, I really enjoyed Elvis. I want to watch it a couple more times just to soak it up and see what it's like. You know, I enjoyed Tom Hanks' performance in it, but Austin Butler's is truly mesmerizing. And, you know, there's just loads of films that are yet to come. The Weird Al Yankovic story with Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. That's a film that I haven't seen yet. I don't know where it's been shown or where I can access it just yet. I need to look into that, but that looks really good as well. And I'm just really looking forward to it and i can't go out of 2022 without mentioning honorable mentions for the year including top gun maverick uh, uh, because that was a standout because it brought massive box office figures and did really well with fans alike who were you know both new and old who knew the old film but also those that didn't know it so i'm very excited to re-watch some of those as we get into the new year and just generally see what other collector's editions are coming out as well of classic films, which will help me revisit those good old films that we know and love, but may not know as well. And as a collector and a film buff, I will indulge myself by looking at the many commentaries, the many behind the scenes fun facts, and I'm sure I'll do reviews on several of them as we come to it. But for now, guys, that is a wrap on Take 97 Film Podcast, the Film 2022 edition and of Take 97 Film Podcast for 2022 overall. I hope to see you in the next year, and I hope you have a happy new year, and I'll talk to you soon about all your favourite films, both past, present, and future. Thank you very much for listening, guys, and I hope you have a great evening. I'll see you later. Happy New Year. Bye-bye.